Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are continuing with Peace Chapter 4. This is going to be the fourth recap episode that we're doing. This is going to cover pages 232 up to 243 in the Orb 2012 edition. There are a few distinct sections here in this uh, part of the novel. But we're going to get a ghost story, another story within a story. So that's what I'm excited to get to. So let's get going. Yes, I'm excited for that as well. That will be maybe not quite the bulk of what we're going to do, but it's going to be a big chunk of what we'll talk about here in this episode. But as this section begins, it is still Saturday. It is the day after the date. Uh, Weir has left Stuart Blaine's house, and he has just rendezvoused with Lois outside of the library so that they can go to Gold's bookshop and pick up Kate Boyne's diary. This first section that we're covering today is actually quite short, but there are three things happening in it. The first is that Weir reports to Lois about what he found at Stuart Blaine's. Now, The Lusty Lawyer is a bad book, and in fact, Weir and Lois talk for a few lines with the insane alliteration of the book, and it's priceless, but also very difficult to read, very difficult to take seriously. And what Weir says is that, yeah, the book was bad, but it wasn't pornographic or anything like that. And so Weir now explains that his hypothesis about why Aaron Gold is concerned about this sale is that he believes that his father has overcharged Stuart Blaine for the book. Perhaps more specific than that, he's worried that his father lied or maybe misrepresented something about the book to such an extent that it would actually constitute fraud. And the thing is, of course, about that is that Stuart Blaine is precisely the type of jerk who would sue over something like that. And, well, yeah, it is also curious that the lusty lawyer is not listed in the biography of Amanda Ross that we are consulted. So something does seem to be up here. The second thing happening in this section is that we get an outside observation about Weir's character. Lois describes Weir as intelligent and likable, uh, likable, in fact, because he's intelligent, and also, even though he's unhappy, he doesn't seem to long to be anywhere other than where he is. And Weir accepts that description. Uh, He also says that genuinely, he would not want to be anywhere else. Uh, In fact, there is a house in town that he would like to own. He's wants to stay here in Cashinsville. And I am curious, Brandon, about which house you think this is, actually, that he has his eye on, that he wishes that he owned, given that we've just learned that Stuart Blaine's mansion was demolished at least 10 years ago. And of course, we have seen how important Stuart Blaine's mansion is to the weird museum mansion that Weir himself is now living in. Yeah, I'm going to answer that question in a minute. But before I do, I want to talk about what you've just brought up uh, about the way that Lois describes Weir, that outside observation on his character. I really like the line that Lois uses about the other intelligent people in Cashinsville. She says that they are, quote, a bunch of bored snobs wishing they were somewhere else without the guts to get there. And that might have described me in 10th grade. I think by 11th grade, I had joined the army and found the guts to get, to get out of a small town. But this line, I think, is such a great antidote to the kinds of petty resentments that can build up You know, when you live in a small town. I don't know. Maybe it works more like a, a gut punch. So I appreciate this sentiment here. Uh, I, think, I think it's well observed. But then Lois goes on to demonstrate 
that she's already begun to develop her own resentments in this town, even though she chose to be a big fish in a small pond here. She compares the, quote, you know, unintelligent people in town to dogs, like they're her little playthings. And it just feels like there's so much to unpack in this line, just about our own society's sense of entitlement surrounding intelligence and maybe the failed meritocracy that we live in and things of that sort. But once again, this dialogue just flies by. And I don't know, maybe none of that is what Wolf had in mind. We certainly will have a lot to talk about with this character, Lois, when we get to the end of this chapter and are doing the, the wrap-up episodes. But right now, at this point, this this point in the chapter, I think Lois is awesome here. I, I really enjoy, well, one, her banter with Weir, the way that she really takes charge of their conversations and also takes charge of their relationship as it's getting started here. But I also like her as an outsider in Cashinsville and her ability to assess it. And this is certainly something that we've seen Weir doing, but Weir's doing it also as an outsider, not a geographical outsider, but a, a kind of temporal outsider where he's got the benefit of hindsight, is thinking back or looking back, you know, decades after events and really thinking about the people in his life and, and able to assess them from that vantage point. And it's interesting to have that then juxtaposed with, with Lois, who's doing the same thing, but but much more present about it. Yeah, she seems to me to be kind of a harsh judge here. And and you're right that she is a curious character. There's a lot going on with her. And I guess we will be dedicating a, a, a good portion of our wrap-up episode on this chapter to just figuring out what she's up to. But I guess I should really answer the question that started this uh <laughs> this conversation. Uh, and I'll say this, I, I don't know whose house Weir wants to buy in town. We know from the text here that he sold his grandmother's house. We believe that Smart must have donated Olivia's house to the town to become the town library. So what other houses do we really know about? Maybe the cave in the cliffs? I don't think Weir wants to buy that and live in it. So my gut response here is that he'd either want Aunt Olivia's house back or he regrets selling his grandmother's house um, or he's referring to the museum house and speaking out of time as he's been doing a lot in this chapter. But I, I can't really make a guess. Did you have something specific in mind? Well, I think that certainly is the catalog of possibilities there. <laughs> but I, I but I really appreciated your insight about the library because I really had been operating on the assumption that that was his childhood home, his 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 parents' house, the house he always refers to as his grandmother's house. But I think your insight that, no, that's Olivia's house, I think makes this bit of, of dialogue here make some more sense too. I, I, I suspect that what he's talking about is actually the library, that he wanted that house. That's actually the house that he grew up in because he moved in there when he was six Right. And then moved back when he was uh, a, a teenager. Right. And so the period of your life where your home really matters to you and is really kind of your whole world, he spent all of those years at Olivia's house and then didn't get a say in what became of that house afterwards. And so I suspect that that's what he's thinking about. Because certainly we see Weir as someone who is, is almost 
defined by, consumed by a sense of nostalgia, a real sentimentality for the the past, and and even also just thinking about what he replicates in the museum mansion as well, seems to have so much more to do with Olivia than it ever does with his parents. It at least has a lot to do with his his childhood, these kind of golden years he experienced from maybe the ages of like six to 10. And I don't know, it seems like things get weird when he's a he's a teenager. We might learn more about that in just a moment here. Right. There's, there's actually much more important material here in this first section that I should, uh, should bring us to here. So Wolf gives us some links backwards with material that we have already encountered. This is really tying up more loose ends. And the first of them is Olivia. As Weir and Lois approach Gold's shop, Weir thinks about how Olivia had died just a block and a half from where they are now. Now, I said died, but Weir actually says been killed, and there will be more on that in future episodes. But before her death, Olivia had put on a lot of weight. Weir uses the word plump. He also uses the phrase increasing corpulence to describe her, though we do then also get a more detailed description of Olivia's body when Weir describes uh, an, an episode, or really several episodes, I guess, of seeing her in the bathtub when he was an adolescent and living with her and Julius. And this happened because Olivia was in the habit of asking him to bring her stuff while she's in the bath, uh, another book, writing materials, stuff like that. And Weir blames the weight gain on the fact that Olivia now has a a cook. This is something that we we know she did when she married Julius. Previously, Weir had described how Olivia didn't really eat very much, mostly because it was too much bother. But of course, she's got a cook now, right? She's got someone doing that for her. And interestingly, and, and surprisingly to me anyway, that person was Militric. It's the person who runs the restaurant that Weir and Lois went to last night. Uh, that person was the Viennese cook that Olivia hired when she and Julius married. And I don't know, Brandon, maybe there's a clue here about your hypothesis that Olivia was having an affair with that cook, an affair <laughs> with Milicic. I will uh, let you explicate that in a minute, because I, I want to hear you continue to, to, to defend this hypothesis. Even if you have abandoned it, I kind of want you to continue to defend it. But at any rate, it is clear that Olivia was having affairs. I don't think with the cook, but she was at least having one affair, we should say, that we know for sure. And this was with Jimmy McAfee. Now, we knew this already, but Weir describes the assignations as happening in McAfee's office at the department store uh, during business hours. But all right, let's do just a little bit more before we pause, Brandon. The last bit in this section is about Mr. Recipe, who managed Stuart Blaine's bank. Uh, we met him in chapter two. Blaine actually mentioned him in the previous section, and we talked about that a little bit. Part of Blaine's story was that Mr. Recipe had absconded to Guatemala with $25,000 from the bank, which was a huge sum at that point. But it was not as large as he could have had. Uh, and in fact, he made a point of leaving a letter for Blaine explaining that what he was taking was due to him over some grievance or something like that. But now we learn, in a, in a scene actually that Wolf didn't write, we learn that Blaine took this back, that actually the bank manager who did this wasn't Recipe at all. It was somebody named Simpson, uh, someone that neither we nor Weir have, have ever met. And Weir laughs about this as he tells 
Lois, he recounts this story to Lois, and he says that he actually hopes that Blaine was right the first time and that the bank manager who did abscond with the money really was Recipe. And so there's a real sense here in Weir's engagement with this story. There's a real sense of of Robin Hood. Uh, It's actually a very different story when Weir tells it than when Blaine did. Weir has the difficult job of parsing through Blaine's stories and determining whether they're true or not. We talked about that in our in our last episode uh, where Blaine's memory is faulty, or at least we're told Blaine's memory is faulty. And it's Weir's job as the author and the like authority of the story that we're receiving to corroborate what's going on with Blaine. And, and that'll come up in, in a minute. I have very little to say w- about Mr. Uh, Rice Pie, but I will say <laughs> I agree with Weir. I do hope it was he who got away with the money and is drinking uh, out of a coconut in Guatemala and having an affair with uh, a native girl however indelicately that is put by by Wolf here. But uh, I want to return to some of the stuff that we learned earlier. You know, among close readers of and, and commentators on this book, there is a lot of hullabaloo around the killing of Aunt Olivia. And I'm sure that in our final wrap-up episode, we'll be trying to solve the mystery of her death if such a mystery is solvable. Uh, but Olivia was, as, as we've pointed out, run down by a car And it must have taken place more than two years after her marriage, though exactly when that was, we don't know. And I mentioned two years here because that's how long Weir lived with Aunt Olivia and Julia Smart after they got married, before his parents arrived. Now, Blaine believed that Weir was 14 or 15 when Smart came into the picture to to tell that story at, at, at McAfee's birthday party. And at this moment in the text, this happened in in the last section, Weir interrupts Blaine, ostensibly because Weir wants to correct Blaine and say that he was younger than 14 or 15 uh, when Smart told the story. But, you know, still, Blaine doesn't really buy that. But if Blaine is right, that means that Weir could have lived with Aunt Olivia just about until the time that he went off to college. We've also learned in this chapter that Vi has been dead for 25 years. That means she died around the time Weir turned 20. I don't know. All of this is to say that we have some real homework to do with regards to the timeline of Weir's life and the stories he's telling. And, and, and Wolf seems to be making a point of giving us these clues to the timeline in this chapter. I agree. And this type of detective work, this historical sleuthing, trying to put together a chronology from evidence that doesn't care about historians in the future putting together a chronology is 100% my jam. I mean, this is why I became an early medievalist rather than some other kind of historian, because half of the work that you have to do is just figuring out even when things happened, when when your evidence is from, uh, putting together the accounts that you have, the documents that you have, trying to put them in some kind of order than other types of historians. They don't get to do that work. Now, of course, those types of historians don't like to do that type of work. And this is actually uh, something of a divide, even just between early medievalists and high medievalists, something that uh, uh, we joke about at bars or pretend we're joking about, but maybe are actually quite serious about. But at any rate, what I'm trying to say is that every decision I've ever made in my life has prepared me to 
to to try to, to to solve this. I'm excited to do this work too. Before we got into chapter four, I had some real downtime, and I made uh, three documents, uh, one for each chapter of notes that were important based on what we've learned in chapter four. I haven't looked at them in four months, but um, I'm excited to see what I, what kind of work I've done. I've completely forgotten. Hopefully, I set myself up for success. There's more in this section we have to talk about, especially with regards to, to Milicek. There are really two more things I want to point out. Um, it feels to me as though Smart has set up Milicek up with the restaurant in town. So that's probably what happened after Aunt Olivia's death. Smart got rid of the chef and, and gave him a restaurant. But I, I, I have to make a retraction here or a correction regarding my statement about Aunt Olivia's chef being the crier at her funeral. Glenn, you are right. <laughs> In rereading the text, it is grammatically the case, as you pointed out, that it is Smart who cried continually at Aunt Olivia's funeral. Though I think Wolf is intentionally being ambiguous with pronouns in that section um, because the other affair partners are named in the passage describing the funeral that we that we, I don't know, got into this dust up over in chapter three. <laughs> but, but the passage here about Milicek really doesn't leave me with the sense that he and Aunt Olivia have engaged in an affair. But Milicek did or Milicek's cooking, I should say, uh, did if we are to be believed awakened something voracious in Aunt Olivia, a desire that could not be sated by neither food nor sex alone, if it could be sated at all. And it's strange to me that we have this passage about a latent desire now awoken in Aunt Olivia in relation to both food and sex, followed by a bit about how Weir used to be his aunt's bath attendant. Now, there's also something in the imagery in this moment in the text, really about the language that Weir chooses, uh, that nearly, you know, set my hair on end, it raised my hackles. Weir describes Julius in his laboratory and his aunt soaking in the bath, kind of while Julius is in the laboratory and Weir is attending to his aunt. Now, we just got the full story from Blaine about Tilly's wife, and it was corroborated by Weir. And then this same language is used to describe Smart and Olivia's relationship. And I'm not sure what to make of this sort of, I don't know, textual echo. It's, it's off-putting. It's eerie, this whole section. And Smart's whole business here, I mean, this whole operation that he has going on in town and that we know has really come to dominate the, the town and provides Weir with a, a new fortune later in life when we, we know he's going to become the president of this company is se seemingly a kind of continuation from something that Julia Smart learned from from Tilly. I mean, that business with uh, with the oranges there, right, doesn't and the syringe with the oranges in that in that ghost story doesn't seem like it's a real coincidence. Now, of course, it, that might be an artificial element of the story. It might not be an actual experience that Julia Smart really had. It might not even be something that Julia Smart ever included in the story that he told to people. That might be 100% we're uh, putting oranges back in his, in his story because orange juice has become so important to him. But it does seem like there are at least a lot of linguistic and imagistic parallels between Julius Smart and Tilly. And it's hard then not to read that into his relationship with Olivia, right? Uh, one thing we know about Olivia is that she's in the bath a lot. And then that's what we get as the conclusion of the, the 
Tilly ghost stories that his wife was in a, a chemical bath. And and yeah, the, the use of the word lab and so on. We're going to have to unpack all of that and try to make some sense of that when we get a little bit more about Julia Smart in uh, you know, sections to come. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced we're going to have a solid answer uh, just yet, but the parallels here are, are undeniable. And, and Wolf here, again, is using uh, a sleight of hand tricks to, I don't know, keep us off the scent, I suppose, maybe literally, because this, this bath is not mentholated. It's uh, filled with lavender and other things like that. <laughs> but it, it seems so different just on a, on a deeper level, on the deeper descriptive level that you're engaging with the text, that you kind of ignore what's happening on the surface. And I think that's Wolf's great trick in this novel is misdirect and getting us as readers to ignore the surface uh, where a lot of the story is being told, but it's easily ignorable because we're looking at details in, uh, I don't know, a a really careful way. Um, I don't know. It's a hell of a magic trick. But in any event, at this point, we are so distracted by thinking about Aunt Olivia in the bath that he's got to switch gears. Right. Let's get into the the next section, which is just a, a single paragraph. And it is an aside. It's an aside back in the present where Weir is writing this all down. And Weir says that he can't write any more about Lois right now. Uh, actually, what he says, this is, I really probably should just quote this. What he says is, I can write nothing more now about the trip Lois and I made to Gold's or our search for the buried treasure. And that is a record scratch moment, at least for me, right? Like buried <laughs> treasure? Like where is that coming from? And we don't know anything about it yet, but I guess we will get that eventually. Weir also says here that he is sick. He says that he feels sicker now, even than he did over the winter before Eleanor Bold's tree fell. And that's the aside. That's everything that we get there. So I'm just going to carry on with the next section before we come to what will really be the main attraction of this episode. This section is quite brief, but it, it takes us back to chapter one again. We had the very special Christmas episode back in that chapter. That was Christmas at Weir's maternal grandfather's house. That's when Weir received a copy of The Green Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. And so now in this section, we are back at that house. It is after Christmas. Christmas has happened, but it might only be a few days or a week or two, something like that. And what I mean is that it might be the same trip, as there is no sign of Weir's father here. Weir has the Green Fairy book with him, so it doesn't seem like they've left, at, uh, you know, gone back to Cashinsville and then returned to wherever this grandfather lives. But at any rate, six-year-old Weir is at the kitchen table and he's writing, uh, or maybe drawing or, or just even scribbling a little bit. And Aunt Arabella is here now, and she loves seeing Weir do this. And she takes a trip down memory lane. She reminisces about how when she and Weir's mother were growing up in this house, their mother used to read stories to the family here in the kitchen. Uh, That was their evening entertainment. This is, you know, before TV, before radio, right? So this was what they did in the evenings for family entertainment. And even though they have some of those accoutrements now, well, radio at any rate, she proposes to do that now. Uh, and in fact, she has just the piece. Ghost Chaser number three is the third in our continuing Ghost Chaser series. Each of these accounts of real-life adventures with the supernatural is true, though in some cases, the names of persons and places have been changed to protect privacy. And so, yeah, that is where we're going to go next. We're going to go get the full text of this story. Right. Next up, a true account of a ghost story. But uh, first, let me say that 
I got a pretty bad case of whiplash when it turned out that Arabella was a grandfather Elliot's during Weir's winter stay there with his mother. And I felt this way because Weir points out in chapter one that he only spent one Christmas at his mother's father's house when he was six, which is certainly old enough to read and write words you know, more than cat or rat. And Weir seems also to go to lengths in this Christmas episode to point out that Arabella is not present on Christmas. But here we are learning a little bit about Weir's Aunt Arabella. She's married to a man surnamed Martin. And then we learn that she also showed up after Christmas Day to like hang out and read an article. So I, I was just uh, blown away by this. It seems like Weir was really changing the story of what we got before. Well, there's no sense here that Arabella's husband is present on this trip at this point. And so what's happening here is that Weir's maternal grandfather, uh, he had two daughters. They both married people and moved away from this community that they grew up in. And so they have to travel. They have to travel quite a long distance in order to return to see their father. Both have done that here over the Christmas holiday, but have done it without their husbands. Uh, Arabella doesn't seem to have any children. There's no mention of children in this section of the story at all. Uh, It doesn't mean she doesn't have them, but they definitely aren't here. I do suspect that she doesn't have children. And so both of these women then have left their husband's at their home, presumably because they've got you know work to do. They don't get a lot of vacation time from their job, have some other responsibilities, and so are left to their own devices while their wives are back visiting their father. And so I guess what we have to understand then is that in Arabella's case, presumably, she and her husband spent the Christmas holiday with her husband's family, and maybe because they had to travel to see them as well or something like that. And so that's why she couldn't be present here actually on Christmas Day. Uh, And then the other thing that goes along with this is I think that for us, Brandon, here in 2022, when we talk about Christmas, and I think even birthdays and other holidays, other types of celebrations, we are way less attached to the date on the calendar than I recall my grandparents being, for example where you know if i'm going to have a birthday party which i'm never going to do but if i were going to have a birthday party and my birthday were on a wednesday i would have that party the next weekend right and that would be fine but i remember my grandparents would never do something like that the birthday is your birthday and that's when you have a that's when you have a party and in fact this was something that was quite annoying when i had just gotten out of the army and was you know working and going to school and could maybe go to a birthday party if it were held on a sunday afternoon or a saturday night but not any time on a wednesday you know and still they would insist on that's when we're celebrating your grandfather's birthday because that is your grandfather's birthday so really what i'm trying to say here brandon is that i think that we've got some of that in weir as well and where it really matters to him that Arabella was not there on Christmas Day. Uh, the fact that she was there a week later or something like that does not mean that she was there for Christmas, even though I would probably describe that as there for Christmas. That's a great point. Yeah. And in the way that our culture has shifted the meaning, Christmas means Christmas break, right? Not, right, not Christmas right. <laughs> Day to us. Uh, I guess that's because that's how school functioned and, and uh, you know, what we were socialized into. But yeah, Christmas Day is Christmas Day. And so all of this emphasis on, on Christmas Day in the story in chapter one uh, is, I, I don't know, it's again a case of misdirect, I think. 
or Weir is conflating memories, but he's very clear that he was only at his grandfather's for one Christmas. This is the only time he was there. And we don't know what Mr. Martin is doing, but we certainly know that John is probably hunting. That's Weir's father. I don't know. That's come up twice in the novel, three times. That's really all we know about Weir's dad is that he goes hunting. Uh, I want to point something else out here, and that's the continuity between this very short scene of Weir writing as an adult that kind of flows into his writing as a child. I mean, the continuity between the scenes is just this activity of writing, and it feels like it's the same Weir traveling once again through his memories, um, but being viewed in time by others at the appropriate age of the memory. Like it, it just feels like time slippage, which is something we'll see more of in this chapter. But as Weir is writing as an adult, he points out that quote, nothing is important. I guess that's not the real quote, but that's something that he knows. But he also knows that some, some things are, if not more important, more immediate than others. And it's this line that really takes us back to the days after Christmas when Aunt Arabella arrives and tells this ghost story. I guess that beyond the mystery of why this moment is immediate in Weir's mind, a mystery I'm not sure we'll be able to really solve, uh, we are given a kind of schema for the novel. Weir's writing is organized or maybe disorganized on the principle of the immediacy of memories as they present themselves to him as he's writing in the present. Well, I think you're right to describe this as as feeling very much like time slippage here. This is, again, something we are going to have to take stock of and are probably going to continue to squabble about until, well, maybe even at the very end of the book. But this does feel like another bit of evidence that we're going to really have to to take stock of when we're trying to figure out what really is going on here with with memory and uh, the way that we see we speak with characters in his memories to have these kind of live conversations with them. This does feel like it's a moment where Weir has projected his consciousness back in time and is actually inhabiting his six-year-old self. It's the exact plot of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. <laughs> it is. In fact, maybe we should consider doing a bonus episode on that film, which, boy, I've not seen in a long time. But uh, all right, let's let's uh, let's get back to stories within the story here. This is going to be the first one that we've had in this chapter. And so really, so far, chapter four has been very different from either chapter two or chapter three in this respect, at any rate. Okay, so this is an article. Uh, it's an article in a, a magazine. Maybe it's a newspaper. And of course, right, it's not really an article. It's a work of fiction pretending to be an article. Uh, and as the, the title, Ghost Chaser Number 3, suggests, it is a ghost story. The gimmick here is that the publication is pretending to send journalists who have knowledge of the occult out to places reputed to be haunted in order to investigate and report back. In this case, the site is not an old mansion, it's not a, a church, but is in fact a very new luxury hotel in a large eastern city. It's a skyscraper, it towers 15 stories above street level. Every room has plumbing, uh, and of course the lighting is all electric, and so it's very modern, very exciting here in the early 1920s. One note about the electricity it isn't on all the time, as we expect now. This is how we live now. Rather, it shuts off at 11 p.m. because electricity is new and it's not abundant, and it's also expensive. 
I also want to make a note about the location here, Brandon. The author says that this is a large eastern city, uh, but then also gives us a detail about how this city is between Baltimore and Boston. It doesn't matter, I don't think, but until proven otherwise, I am going to imagine that this is Philadelphia and that uh, you and I could still go grab a drink in the hotel bar the next time here in town. Uh, we're we're going to at least pretend that that's what we're doing at some at some point. <laughs> but all right, on with the story here. Even though this hotel is new and fancy, there have been more than a dozen reports of weird supernatural stuff, uh, mostly taking place on the 14th floor. And so our intrepid reporter is there to check it out, uh, staying on that 14th floor. The goal is to stay awake all night and see what there is to be seen, and this involves using candles after 11. And it is sometime after 11. Uh, The electricity has gone off at that point. It's sometime after 11 when the noises start. These are tumultuous and, and maybe even sound like the rumble of vehicles and the blowing of horns from the street below. But the writer is not in an exterior room. This room only looks down onto a courtyard. Naturally, our reporter goes into the hallway to investigate, and there are windows at each end of the corridor that do look out over the street, and so here now is what the reporter says. I reached it at last, and looking down toward the pavement, 150 feet below, beheld a swimming and irregular glow, as though a thousand carriage lamps were moving to and fro in a mist. But here's the thing. The window is frosted, so you can't actually see clearly out through it. So who knows what these lights actually are? The reporter walks the entire corridor, uh, and the hotel is just a square with a hole in the middle, so the corridor runs the entire circuit. And Anyway, the reporter walks the whole thing looking for a clear window, but there just isn't one. And of course, while making this walk, uh, the reporter goes by every room on the 14th floor and sees that a lot of people are up with lights on, and, and even hears a gramophone playing a symphony or something but no one else seems to notice the noises. And so eventually, we come back to the reporter's room, where the reporter just sits up until the noises dim and disappear, and then the reporter just goes to sleep. In the morning, the reporter talks over the experience with the assistant manager downstairs and finds that the night clerk didn't hear anything like this. There were only two vehicles that went by the hotel in the middle of the night like this, but that's it. According to the log, though, there was a phone call from the 14th floor at precisely the time the reporter was hearing these noises. The occupant of the room complained about unaccountable lights which hovered in the air of the room. But that can't be. There's only one phone, and that's in the hallway, and the reporter would have been aware of this phone call because the reporter was out walking around. But the log also records the number of the room from which the call came, and guess what? It came from the reporter's own room. and. That's it. That's the the whole story here. It has a twist ending. But in fact, the real twist is that it turns out that the author of this piece is Weir's aunt Arabella herself. Now, I said at the top that this is a a story, but Mab Crawford, uh, we have not said that name in a long time, but Mab Crawford is here, and she asks if the story is true. And Bella 
says that it is. And in fact, she says that she left out some details for fear that she wouldn't be believed. But uh, I'm not convinced, right? This is a work of fiction. (laughs) Yeah, I I really wonder what details could have been left out for fear of not being believed in a series called uh, Ghost Chaser. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a note here that the author of the piece is our Aunt Tarabella is an experienced journalist, Glenn, as you pointed out, who is knowledgeable in the occult. All in all, I'd say this is a pretty good setup. And we we know from the first chapter also that Aunt Arabella set up the Cashinsville Spiritualist Society, which, I don't know, means maybe she lives at Cashinsville at some point. It's hard to say. But uh, to your point about this story being true or untrue, uh, nothing actually happens in this story except that the author, Arabella, is staying on what is most likely the 13th floor of the hotel and that she uses a lot of hyperbole to describe what she sees through frosted glass, which is something she's unfamiliar with. Uh, plus there's some noise, which, you know, could be just electric currents running through the walls of the hotel. I guess we get the word like cricket, which comes up later on in this chapter. That's another thing she's unfamiliar with, not crickets, but electric currents. Um, I think you're right to point out that this hotel is likely to be in Philly, but in an earlier episode in this in the series on chapter four, I pointed out this strange line about, you know, circles of wit playing jokes after midnight in second rate hotels in New York City. Now, that line jumped out to me during a reread in this chapter because I, I can't be sure if Wolf is referencing something, you know, specific historically that I'm just really ignorant of or if he's knitting together this reference, uh, that reference to this story by Aunt Arabella, even though, as we both said, it's it's likely not to have been taken place in New York City. Arabella's story here, though, feels nonetheless like another of these soft echoes of that passage about the critics. I mean, what this story really feels like is that Arabella got a nice day in a hotel on the magazine's dime, and all she had to do was come up with a puff piece about how it's actually a really nice hotel and the ghosts aren't that scary. So you should stay there for sure. Make sure you stay at the Regency when you're in Philadelphia. Right. I I wonder if she even ever actually stayed at the hotel, right? I mean, I think if you're making up the ghost story, you can make up the part about whether or not you stayed at the hotel. I certainly believe she went to the hotel, but, (laughs) you know, I don't think I believe that that she actually stayed there. I suspect that this is not actually Philadelphia. In fact, I think that would be my my third candidate here. I do think New York is probably the most likely. Some of that just really about even the layout of the hotel. That's more like how New York hotels are are laid out than uh, Center City. Philly hotels usually are, are laid out. But uh, also, yeah, I think for the reasons that you've outlined as well, New York may be a little more thematic there. But I do think that actually a strong second choice, a second candidate here is Providence. But that is an argument I'll have to put forth a little bit later in this chapter when Providence uh, shows up in a, a way that I certainly was not expecting and do not want to spoil for uh, first-time readers who are reading along with us. Yeah, I can't wait to get to the to those moments later on in this chapter. This this chapter, we've said this every chapter uh, that we've read so far, but this chapter might be the best chapter in the novel. <laughs> we have indeed said that every chapter so far. And of course, we're going to go read the book several more times before we end up actually doing the wrap-up episodes. And so I think that might actually be a fair question for our wrap-up <laughs> episode to really put us on the spot and say which chapter was our was our favorite, if not necessarily what we regard as our best. 
But that is for far in the future. And we do have a little bit more work to do before we close out this episode. There's one small section left to narrate. And this is a digression from the the present where Weir is writing this all down. He tells us that he's in his museum mansion and he's left the room that is the replica of his office at the juice plant and is now in a replica of this kitchen where Aunt Bella read out this story when he was a child. Uh, This is the room that he thinks of as Mab Crawford's kitchen, uh, though, of course, it had once been his grandmother's. He just doesn't remember his grandmother, his uh, maternal grandmother, I should say. But Weir also tells us that he was really hoping that he would open the door and find his secretary's desk outside, Uh, by which he means that he was really hoping that he would find that this whole business with the stroke was just a, a bad dream, essentially. But it's not. He also tells us that he'd really like to find the Persian room again, or even just the porch with the fire. And so what we're learning here is that Weir is now lost in his own house. Right. This house is just feeling more and more impossible to me. The deeper we go into this book, it it seems to be constructing itself out of the immediacy of Weir's memories. And once again, the time slippage here is pronounced as Arabella says that Den is going to be a journalist as he's writing down all of her story, um, which I will say is just a, a bit of virtuosic writing on Wolf's part, who's written this in an entirely different style, uh, adapted how he imagines you know, a female voice writing in a male-dominated field must be, and all of these sorts of things. I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of writing. But you know, as Arabella say, saying that Den is writing all of this down, we get a paragraph break in the text, and then Weir says, and so I am, as though he's present and recording this memory as it's happening. So yeah, this house is weird, uh, and now it just seems to be working against Weir's wants and desires, but I don't know, maybe it's taking him on a journey he he needs to go on to achieve some other sort of end that hasn't been uh, presented to us as readers yet in this in this text. You, you call this house impossible, Brandon, and I think that's a great word for it. But I, I want to emphasize that at least what I'm understanding when you say that, and certainly what I am feeling while I'm reading this, is unreal. I'm starting to have doubts about the veracity, the reality of this house <laughs> that Weir keeps describing for us. Uh, and, and this detail about getting lost in it, I think, really cements that to me. I mean, we all know that Marcus Brody once got lost in his own museum. And, and certainly there are houses on the planet big enough that even the owner could get lost in. But I just uh, starting to have some real doubts about the, the reality of this house. And, and I'm glad too, Brandon, that you, you brought up the yeah, virtuosity of this ghost story. This ghost story that Aunt Arabella writes, I mean, this would be a great story for us to cover on Elder Sign. I mean, it would be right at home as a, a little ghost story. And it's something we should say, because we, we didn't when we were really on that section, is that actually there is a lot to discuss about what is happening in that ghost story. And that is something that we will do in the, the wrap-up episodes for Chapter 4. We'll try to dissect that ghost story to take it seriously on its own terms. But then also, I think we're going to have to think about seeing it as thematically related, or at least related in terms of motif in some way to what else is happening in the in the book. Right. So far, this ghost story feels like it doesn't connect to too much else that's going on in the obvious ways that, say, the, I don't know, 
banshee story may have or the story about the djinn or the fairy tale of about aunt olivia or even julia smart's ghost story this feels uh wholly other than all of those and and i still haven't quite nailed it down so i'm glad we have time to think about how it fits in with everything and uh Uh, That will all come in our wrap-up episode, but that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and gain access to dozens and dozens of bonus episodes, and also check out the bonus series that we've been doing on books like At the Mountains of Madness, uh, Swamp Thing by Alan Moore, also the TNG movies, the Star Trek The Next Generation movies, Please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. Your support means the world to us and helps keep us on the air and keeps all of these projects that we do going. Next time, we're going to be reading between pages 243 and 252 in the Orbit 2012 edition, which has us reading up through the line $40,000 in gold here, for those of you reading along in other editions. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>